I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Bill Bukowski, and we are getting into one of the most popular symphonies, the number five by Tchaikovsky. We explore its shaky origins through his personal correspondence, what to listen for as the symphony unfolds from beginning to end, and we break down a melodic tool used by Tchaikovsky and songwriters today. The horn solo bill in the second movement of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, it's one of the most beautiful moments in music. But we hear it in other places, too, popping up time to time, thinking also John Denver's Annie's song. It's almost like, you know, who did it better, John Denver or Tchaikovsky? That's a tough uh, comparison to make. Tough comparison. They're so different, but they both have that just beautiful, yearning quality. And the thing is, John Denver actually wasn't aware of the connection. I guess his manager had mentioned to him, oh, you love Tchaikovsky, I guess. But that's to say, this yearning feeling is something we call an appoggiatura. And we're going to explain that later because we hear it all over the place in music, sometimes as a coincidence, like with John Denver and Tchaikovsky. But before we get into the first movement, let's set the stage bill and give some context for the symphony. Tchaikovsky wrote his fifth symphony between May and August of 1888. And Today, it's so easy because we can just look at all of his symphonies, one through six, at once and hear them any way we want. But of course, they weren't written all at once. They were written over decades. In fact, it was like, I think, a decade between his fourth and his fifth symphony. In the meantime, he had written operas and other stuff, but a decade between those two. That's true. And I think a lot of that goes back to the the model of Beethoven. Symphonies have become huge means of personal expression. And Tchaikovsky was no stranger to that any more than anyone else was. And it had to be a big statement. And I saw that he had written another symphony technically in between these two, the Manfred Symphony. It's not numbered. There's no number associated with it. It's programmatic. It has a whole story and narrative through it, but it's not played all that often. I also saw Tchaikovsky in a letter, I think he was talking about between his fourth and his fifth, you know, do I have it in me for another one 10 years later? And he kind of didn't even mention this one, the Manfred Symphony. Yeah, that that's a fascinating experiment, I think is the best way to put it. It's a massive work and it's it's well worth exploring if you love Tchaikovsky, but it was almost like it was a one-off. Yeah. It was, let's do this. And then he put that aside and did something else, something like Sibelius and his Kulervo Symphony, mm. it, you know, which is a choral symphony versus his uh, symphonies one through seven. So his numbered symphonies, obviously, you know, it it seems like they're in a category of their own. And he starts writing the symphony, or he gets the idea after the successful European tour. And it's so hard to see Tchaikovsky, I guess, in retrospect, of course, we know his music, but he wasn't confident that he even had the ability to write this. He wrote in a letter to um, his brother, but in truth, there is no desire to create yet. What does that mean? Am I finally written out? No thoughts and moods, but I hope that little by little the material for the symphony will be gathered. It's crazy to think. We hear this triumphant work, but he was so doubtful even before it started. Yeah, and I was thinking about that because I think that anybody that's involved in any kind of creative endeavor, any kind of creativity, writers, authors, artists of any kind, sometimes you get to a point where you think, well, I don't know what I'm going to say next. I don't know what to do. I'm, I have no ideas. And you need something to sort of get yourself out of that mental and logjam yeah. to 
finally sit down and, and produce something. And I can see Tchaikovsky with that too, especially his last symphony before this, the symphony number no. four was such a great statement. And he just absolutely adored that symphony. Tchaikovsky was always self-critical, but he loved his own fourth symphony. And I mean, he was self-critical, like you said, and it's easy to forget that these composers, they, they were people too. And I also think maybe it's a, an aspect of you write these huge symphonies and you don't want the next one to be the one that takes you down. That is, that is the flop. There's a quote, I think it was Dr. Dre, anybody can make it. The hard part is keeping it. Right, exactly. Especially in a, the form of a symphony, a grand romantic symphony, which for Tchaikovsky was such a personal statement. So let's get right into the first movement here. It opens quite dark and solemn. There is this melody we hear right from the beginning that is the motto. This is something we hear in every single movement of the symphony, although not always developed or really analyzed, but it always appears somewhere. And this kind of solemn, somber opening bill, it's, I hear this in other works by Tchaikovsky too, almost religioso in nature, like the 1812 Overture or openings to his eventual Sixth Symphony and also an earlier one as well. This is really a funeral march. It comes off sounding like a funeral march or dirge. This, yeah. is, this is Tchaikovsky in a very serious mood. It's almost like, you know, he's saying, here lies Tchaikovsky, the composer that couldn't write another. Yeah, or again, going back to the whole idea of fate. Fate's not knocking at the door. In this case, fate is inexorable. You cannot escape it. And he's stuck. He's stuck. And he's using the clarinet in its lower register. And when we listen to a recording, you know, the volume is up. We can hear it quite well. When you're in concert and you're in the hall filled with people, this is usually pretty, pretty soft like some of the other openings that we're talking about that he wrote. And it creates this kind of lean-in moment. You're In music, you're trying to draw the audience in, especially in the clarinet, already a soft instrument, now in the lower register, an even softer area of the instrument. But this little motto, not little, I should say, this motto comes to an end, and it's almost like we have another fresh start to the symphony. It almost feels like this could be the start of the symphony all by itself. Yeah, this is actually the second of the three themes that we're going to hear in this first movement. And this time, the funeral march has almost become a purposeful march. Like, now we're getting serious and now we have to start moving. And he gets that moving feeling with not just a new tempo. Sometimes conductors play this pretty slow. It's written to be played kind of bright, a little more up-tempo than some. At least that's what Tchaikovsky writes in the score. We're in a new time signature, too. We're not in 4-4, four, four, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4. But we have this lilting da 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 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 that gives you this kind of propulsive feeling. And this is a melody that he does then dissect and break apart. And this is what he's kind of analyzing and... This is the melody he's developing over the first movement, not necessarily that motto we heard in the beginning. 
And if you haven't listened to our Life of Tchaikovsky episode number 29, I highly recommend it because a lot of the characteristics we talk about in his music are on full display here. I'm thinking of also, Bill, when you were talking at one time about the Mannheim crescendo, this idea in the early days of the symphony of a whole orchestra crescendoing together. Here we are 150 years later seeing these kinds of ideas at almost their peak in possibility. Right, yeah. A good idea lasts a long time in this situation. And like Tchaikovsky, lines are um, passing around the orchestra. Sometimes they're really just fragments, a few notes that get passed around very quickly. And, Bill, for myself, we get to pretty quickly early on in the symphony my one of my absolute favorite moments here. It's almost kind of like a one-off moment, but with these horns soaring through the air. Today, when you see a movie and there's a hero, oftentimes, it's almost a cliche at this point, it's the horn that accompanies the hero in film. This dates back centuries, and we're hearing this with Tchaikovsky. It's almost like that dirge is so dark in the opening, but ultimately, just hearing this, you know that there is a serious fight and, in the end, a kind of triumph. Right. I just absolutely, absolutely love it. He's also able to, throughout this chaos, kind of have moments where the clouds just part, the sun shines in just for a moment, almost like a distraction, like he's composing. And he lets those moments of distractions, good distractions, it sounds like, into the music as well, where it's kind of like this floating line. So as you said, Bill, we have a couple of different themes here that Tchaikovsky is expanding on. And we get to now one where it sounds almost like it is a brand new theme. I kind of call it like a horn call melody, dun, 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 dun. It sounds like a hunting horn, right? Right, exactly. And it's, as you said, that's that's the ray of sunshine. And it's very much like time signature-wise, like the, the second theme that we just heard. Right. But it adds a different note of color. And Tchaikovsky was a brilliant orchestral colorist. But um, these three themes, if you will, these are the these are the seeds for the whole symphony. And one of the things that I love about this symphony, especially for people who are new to Tchaikovsky or new to classical music, is each of these themes are unforgettable and very easy to remember as you're listening to the whole work. That's exactly it. They just really stick with you. This one, though, is it sounds like this is a new theme. This is actually just a quick snippet that flies by in the opening theme that we heard earlier. So we hear that horn line originally much earlier in the flutes, and it just just passes by so briefly, just kind of unassuming, unannounced, but then it becomes a huge moment that is played again and again differently throughout the movement. Another moment I love, Bill, that I want to play, and there's so much in this first movement, it could we could spend a, a year here almost dissecting everything, but this is something that Tchaikovsky is kind of a hallmark for himself where he can take a line that seems to be just soft and floating and move it forward and create more tension and more tension exploring extremes of registers. 
talking about the forward motion before, and he creates that often by not starting the melody on a downbeat, but rather there's a rest, maybe another instrument in the orchestra comes in, the accompaniment, and then the strings, the higher strings, the violins, start on the offbeat, just kind of floating, and it kind of gives you that falling, not falling forward, but this propulsive motion that leads up to that high point. Right, right. And um, it injects a note of nostalgia mm. into the uh, music. And, and almost as you said, it almost sounds like uh, part of his ballets. One reason I love Tchaikovsky, I absolutely love his ballets. And I love how his symphonies and his ballets, they're the ideas, they're, they're all kind of intertwined. It's not, here's Tchaikovsky as a symphonist, here's Tchaikovsky as a ballet composer or opera or whatever. It's all Tchaikovsky. Exactly. The end is quite something, isn't it? It's this march, this dirge, I think, now that you're saying dirge, I'm hearing it more and more. The march at the end, it takes us into like desolation like the opening. It's like it's folding back into itself, almost like there was this whole event that happened in front of us, but then as it came, it disappeared and like there's no trace of it. Right. It's like fate is inexorable. Mm. The first movement, action-packed, a lot of different aspects of Tchaikovsky's uh, writing here. Before we get to the second movement, we can look at how, even though Tchaikovsky has started and he's writing these incredible things that we just heard, he is still unconfident. He wrote to Nadezhda von Meck, his big patron for over 10 years, he wrote to her saying, I must work harder in the future. I want so much to show not only to others, but to myself that I still haven't expired. I don't know whether I wrote to you that I had decided to write a symphony. At first, it was fairly difficult. Now inspiration seems to have deserted me completely. Yeah, and Madame von Meck was a, a longtime patroness and supporter of Tchaikovsky for over 10 years. And here's the kicker. They never met in person. It's so wild. Yeah, it was their friendship, and it was a deep abiding friendship, and it went on entirely through letters. There was actually a story that one time that he related, they ran into each other on the street, and they were both so embarrassed that they turned away and walked away from each other. I mean, what do you do? You're writing to, you have a pen pal for 10 years, and you want that, they, they specifically wanted that, that distance, and then what do she, you do? She actually, in the beginning, now that I remember, she insisted that it be that way, that they never That's meet. Right. So when they did accidentally meet, Tchaikovsky wanted to say something, but he knew that she didn't want him to say anything. So it just, a very awkward moment between friends this close. It's, it's really kind of interesting. And it's amazing how this relationship and her supporting him in his music made all of this possible, and they never met. Right, and they never met. And Tchaikovsky relied on her not so much for the funds, but for the artistic and the inspirational support. When all of a sudden she stopped writing to him, he was devastated. But that's down the road. Yes. So thankfully, as great artists do, you can't wait for inspiration. You have to write. So thankfully, Tchaikovsky just kept moving forward. And it brings us to the second movement, which has one of the most beautiful moments in a symphony that we have, really. But it starts, again, very different. He takes us into a place almost like where we left off with the first movement. It's kind of dark and kind of barren. But then, almost like a daydream, and though I often hear Tchaikovsky's slow second movements or just slow movements in general, oftentimes super intimate. It's like he's bringing us into into his own head. And it's like, at this point, we're listening to this horn solo, but it's an absolute, just kind of beautiful daydream for Tchaikovsky. 
time seems to stand still. Yeah, John, this is what composers call the money tune. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it, this this is just, it's an irresistible tune. As you said, it's like he's opening his heart to you directly, you to the composer to the listener. And I say money tune, but it actually worked too. Back in the golden age of song in the mid-20th century, uh, there was a songwriter that actually took this entire tune and lifted it and made a pop song called Moon Love. If you uh, check YouTube, uh, Frank Sinatra with Nelson Riddle, the orchestra, it's lifted directly from the song. It's pretty direct. I'll put a video on the show notes page to that too. But what gives it that yearning quality, it's all done through what we call an appoggiatura. And the Italian root of that, appoggiare, means to lean upon. So this whole thing in appoggiatura is done when a composer goes from a lower note, leaps to a higher note, that is dissonant. That is meaning it's creating tension by being a note that does not fit within the chord or the harmony around it. And this often happens on a big downbeat, for instance, here in Tchaikovsky, on the very first beat of a measure. And then that note resolves down to a note that does belong in the underlying chord. So you get this delayed expectation of the note and the harmony. It's that delayed gratification that gives it that yearning quality by leaning into the dissonance and resolving that tension. And this is what makes that tune so irresistible. If you ever hear a song and a tune that you really love and you, why do I like this? This is a good example of that. For this, for the John Denver song we were talking about earlier, Annie's song, and also for Moon Love. And you hear it everywhere. That's why it's not called the Tchaikovsky, we call it an appoggiatura because it's a basic tool for writing music. So you'll hear it in other parts of the symphony. You'll hear it in other John Denver songs for sure. And we should do a podcast just on appoggiatura. I think that would be fun. Hidden appoggiaturas. Yes. Mm, I like it. This is a beautiful melody using that appoggiatura, of course. And when I think about daydreams, especially with this movement, I think of it because the oboe comes in, and it's almost like this is his awakening, kind of coming out of gently of a daydream, someone walking in a room, something happens here. familiar sounding yearning quality there, right? This, yeah, this is also another example of Tchaikovsky learning something from the composer he revered more than anything else, Mozart. Mozart was a master at having one instrument end and another one picking up the tune and then oh, yes. going off. This is, this is a perfect example of it. And it's delicious is the only word I can think of to describe it. Mm, delicious. I like that. And what he's doing here is another musical tool to create tension and build to something. The oboe is playing... And underneath, there are triplets. There's three notes and a beat that the strings are giving us. Da, 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 da. And as the oboe continues their solo, they then do what we call a hemiola. That's a ratio of three against two. So instead of playing three notes in a beat, the oboe is now playing two. And it clashes sort of with the three that the strings are giving us. And it leads up into that resolution. It's always driving towards somewhere. And the hemiola three against two rhythm is a big part of that. And of course, the strings take the theme, but there's something to always listen to here, uh, Bill. And that is 
on a lot of these lines, they're so beautiful, you almost forget the incredible beauty around them. The woodwinds are intertwining. Like you said, doing what Mozart did, one starts, another ends, another starts, another ends, and that leads up into um, big orchestral moments, even in the second movement where you think it's more, it might be more placid. There is another theme that he brings in here, and this one is, it's quite peculiar. It's just a very, very different sound here. It's a very Russian sound. It's one of those things where that runs through a lot of Russian romantic music. It's There's just something about it. Russian, this is about the only way I can come up with it. And Tchaikovsky was a composer who didn't always get along with the Russian establishment, right? Because he was, you know, borrowing more European ideas and influences. But it sounds like, of course, he was still including this kind of nationalist um, Russian sounds as well. Yeah, it's got its roots in folk music, like most musics of any culture or any country have. And Tchaikovsky explored a lot of his own folk music in his first three symphonies as well. So yes, he became more cosmopolitan, but in one sense, you can take the boy out of the step, but you can't take the step out of the boy. I like that. And the question is, well, where is the motto? Where is that theme we heard in the very opening movement, that kind of fate theme? It does appear here, and it is, I just love how Tchaikovsky is able to, even in these slow movements, which a hundred years ago with Haydn, if, if Haydn did something like this, he would be maybe chased out of the concert hall, this huge different sound when the motto comes in. It's almost like an obtrusive or an intrusive thought, yeah. this motto. Right. It's uh, it's a little bit like a daydream sequence, but then all of a sudden reality intrudes. Mm. And he brings it back, and again, quite suddenly in, in the brass, and that's what I think. I think Haydn would be chased out of a concert hall 100 years before doing something like this. The surprise symphony was um, enough for them. But this ends soft as well and absolutely beautiful. It's such solitude brought on again by... The clarinet, the winds, especially the darker, lower sounds in the winds were something that Tchaikovsky used. Yeah, and he uses that a lot, the lower notes a lot in this symphony. So we've been through a bit of the first movement, the second movement. It is now later in summer in June, uh, late June, early July, when Tchaikovsky is writing uh, patrons and uh, family members, saying that he's now roughly finished the symphony and he's now moving on to instrumentation. And that's basically, I mean, if we think of Mozart, he was such a genius. In his symphony, sometimes he would just literally write up and down the score. All the notes, all the instruments get to the last page and he's done. Right. Most composers, and especially after him as music became more more complicated, to say the least, that wasn't um, something that everyone did. So basically, Tchaikovsky had the symphony roughed out. He knew the melodies. He knew what was going to be working around it. But all the instruments, that was not 
factored in yet. The orchestration wasn't done. He had basically a skeleton of a symphony. The structure, right, to which he would eventually add all the embellishments that he wanted. Mm-hmm. But he writes to that patron, Nadezhda von Meck, that he's been working hard. He's got the symphony prepared in rough. But at the moment, it is still difficult to say how this symphony will turn out compared with my previous ones. And a little bit later, he writes to someone saying, my work is now progressing terribly slowly. Time flies. Old age draws near and each moment is precious to me. But in the meantime, despite my efforts, I cannot concentrate on work. He's a little morose there. Time flies. Old age draws near. This is a man who's very, very distracted by his thoughts, by the world, by different things that he's dealing with at the time. And he wants to show to people and himself that, like he said in the beginning, that he's not written out, that he's not played out, that there is still something left in him to write. This, by the way, is a man in his 40s. Keep that in mind, too. I I completely forget about that. He's in his 40s. Right. My gosh, Tchaikovsky, too deep. This was a guy who worried a lot. (laughs) To say the least. So we'll get to the third movement and more right after this. Teachers, parents, students, and music lovers, take note. Classical WETA announces our online educational resource for classical music called Take Note. Young music lovers can explore masterpieces and meet the greatest composers and performers using episodes of our Classical Breakdown podcast, paired with guided creative activities that enhance music appreciation. An enduring love of classical music begins with Take Note at takenoteclassical.org. And that brings us now to the third movement, Bill. This is a waltz. This is a movement. I don't want to say this is this is definitely not a throwaway movement, but it, it is shorter. It is on the lighter side thematically, but it's still important in transitioning us from the second to the, the fourth movement. But this he brings in this waltz, I guess, kind of reminiscent of the old minuet. Yeah, but definitely a waltz. And which was, of course, all the rage at the time. But it's also, like a lot of Tchaikovsky's waltzes, a little nostalgic, but also a little melancholy, too, when you really listen to it. Oh, yeah. And in the beginning, we hear that appoggiatura coming back in as well. There you go. And he does things typically that you find in his other works. I get Nutcracker vibes as quick lines are passed around the orchestra constantly. And it's one, as you're listening, you're wondering, well, how do you bring the motto in for this one. It's actually towards the end that the motto comes in. It's that motto from what we heard very minor and and dirge-like in the beginning. Now it sounds a little portly, a little lighthearted. This sounds like just a perfect interlude between dances and like Swan Lake. Right, exactly. And also sort of like, well, the dance is over, now it's back to reality again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, that that theme is, is Tchaikovsky having to face reality and trying to put it off, but it still keeps coming back. It's a fun movement. I like it. Again, it's it's short, but it's perfectly balanced in transitioning between between movements and kind of giving you, um, it's like a refreshing, I don't know, something pickled between one dish and the next at a, at a meal. And it comes to the point where he completes the symphony now in August. He's doubtful, 
And now that he's completed it, he starts to come around to it. He writes to Nadezhda von Meck in August. He says, Now as the symphony nears its end, I can view it objectively. And at the combination of the work, I must say that, thank God, it is no worse than my previous ones. This accomplishment means a great deal to me. You know, this is interesting, John. This reminds me of something that my wife says a lot. My wife is a writer by profession, and I don't know who originally said this, but she says, like all writers, I hate having to write, but I love having written. Ah, yes. And that's what's going on here with Tchaikovsky, I suspect. It's like just finishing it is an accomplishment itself. Right, right. And you feel great, and it's like, well, what was I so worried about? That's the thing. We're always so worried about things. We stress, we get anxiety, but in the end... It's almost never as bad as we thought it was going to be. You know, it's interesting, John. One of the things that he wrote was, I am so pleased that my symphony is safely finished. Think of that, the adjective he uses or the adverb, safely finished. Yeah. Like he was anticipating a lot of trouble. And in another letter, a little bit later, he said that he's, you know, thank God I still have the will to work. But my urge to produce is so great that even two lifetimes would barely be sufficient to carry out all of my plans. That sounds very Beethoven, Heiligenstadt testament to me as well. And also back to the, I'm I'm old and my life is running out. I'm in my 40s. And, you know, and now all of a sudden it's like, oh, now I've got all kinds of ideas, but probably not enough time to do it. And sadly he was right. But that's another story. Oh, yeah. But getting into the fourth movement now, it opens with that motto we've been talking about a lot, but now it's clearly sounding different. It's long, it's drawn out, but now, instead of E minor, we're in E major. There's hope here. Right. It's no longer a funeral march. This is the I love having written theme. By the time he got to the fourth movement, he knew it it would all be okay. Yeah, he knew he was coming around the last curve and heading for the finish line. It's like the first one was a march into a funeral, into death. This is a march into life. It seems to be more stoic, and it continues. But we hear there's clearly more tension left to explore. There are these towering chords that you hear also just a little bit after this. It's this back and forth you hear in the movement, like good and bad will succeed or fail. Maybe along those lines again of him doubting or thinking it's all going to be okay. And you as the listener, we as the listener, we still can't tell either, right? Mm-hmm. And he does that by building this momentum. And you think of, okay, we've heard this motto, what's going to happen? He brings us into a whole new world as the strings kind of blow into it. very turbulent, isn't it? Turbulent and, yeah, it's that the end is near, but there's still a lot that can happen. It feels like we're in the last 10 minutes of like an action movie. And yes, and something still might go wrong. Mm -hmm. The motto comes back in the brass and it is quite heroic. I mean, this is absolutely 
triumphant, but there's still there's still a lot more left to explore, but already in the brass, showing us that, I guess, in the end, it all kind of works out. Right, and there's still some fight left in him, you know? There's also some, not necessarily false endings, maybe in one case, but there's instances here where the music kind of dies down or even stops before exploding back in. Yeah, it's like there's this one passage where the music just kind of, what we just heard, just sort of chugs to a stop before the woodwinds come in and pick it up again. And that's also one of my favorite transitions as it goes from the high brass and the trumpets to just going lower and lower in trombones and then tuba. It creates this like a cavernous thousand foot deep hole. And then the the winds just come soaring over, almost like a bird. Yeah, like to pull you right out again. And shortly after this, there is a moment, again, to kind of talk about an, an action film. It's like everything's about to be solved or saved, but then there's a sudden moment where it seems like things might not turn out. And then much faster, although it's on just one note in the trumpet, it's still that rhythm of the motto. Right, very passionate music and uh, very dramatic, as you said. There's a moment also in the music where it comes to a grinding halt. We call this usually in music a grand pause, or actually we call it in, in the United States railroad tracks. Oh. Because they're, in the music, there's two slashes that look like, I guess, little tiny railroad tracks. And that's when everything comes to a, a stop. Nothing's happening. He does that here by giving an extended pause over a rest. But there's a moment where it all stops and then comes flying back in. The hero, or Tchaikovsky in this case, has is the hero, and he's won. He's overcome. And it's also a very famous audience trap, uh, where if you're not paying attention, if you haven't been paying attention, you might think, oh, the symphony's over. Time to clap. Yeah. And then you get stopped. The ghost of Haydn? Oh, yes. Haydn, that symphony you're talking about, Haydn, with that fake ending, that has actually faked me out. Yeah, it, it does. It fakes a lot of people out. And a really good performance, like this one we just heard, will draw that out, and you're almost tempted to stand up and start clapping, mm-hmm. if you've not been paying attention. So pay attention and listen to this very, very majestic and heroic ending. The end, one thing, well, we can get to kind of how now it was received. Friends liked it. But in a letter again to Nadezhda von Meck, he said, I am convinced that the symphony is not a success. There is something repellent about such excess, insincerity, and artificiality. And that was coming from critics, right? They were saying it was excessive, it was insincere, and all of this stuff, or it was too drawn out in the end. And the end, in my opinion, is not drawn out at all. It's just right. No, Tchaikovsky, too, dealt with a lot of criticism from friends that thought his music was a little too overwrought. And Mm -hmm. I suspect that... It's quite possible with this symphony, it was, uh, as I said, a deeply personal uh, reflection or expression, and maybe he was regretting opening his heart up a little too much, especially if, you know, somebody stomps on it like a critic. Yeah. I mean, he even said, I am increasingly certain that my last symphony, the fifth here, is not a successful work, and the realization that it is unsuccessful is very distressing to me. He also wrote that my 
powers might be declining. Hard to believe. Yeah, and it's like he's gone back to how he was feeling before. And I think back in this time period, you know, in the late 1800s, critics were... Critics are harsh today, but critics, I think, they seem to just be really harsh in centuries past. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a, a book uh, by Slonimsky, the Dictionary of uh, Musical Invective, where you can read a lot of the contemporary criticism at the time of Tchaikovsky's work, and it's really very vicious, even by today's standards. It's a shame. Thankfully, maybe today we're kinder to each other. Um, at least that's what I hope, but I think that's happening in music. But I also think, too, that Tchaikovsky's time has come. Yeah, Tchaikovsky's music is loved the world over. There are still he still has his detractors, mm-hmm. and not everybody's going to like everything too. But uh, I also have to go back and remember back in the '90s there was it was a Tchaikovsky centennial, and I remember one of my colleagues at the station I was working there says, "It's hard for me to believe that at one time a man like this actually walked the earth." Yeah, now that's that's the kind of love that people have for Tchaikovsky. If I could meet a composer, he might be the one I would meet. Right. And and ask him, you know, why are you so self-critical? This is beautiful. Yeah. Cheer up. Yeah. Thankfully, in the next year, he did cheer up. In 1889, he wrote to, I think it was his nephew, saying, The musicians took to the music more and more each time the symphony was played. At rehearsals, there was general enthusiasm, flourishes, etc. The concert also went excellently. As a result, I no longer have a bad opinion of the symphony and like it once more. The thing also is, we've heard this symphony and performed it an extraordinary number of times. It is standard. You could put this in front of any orchestra, and they'll play it maybe even better than it was premiered because we we just know it so, so well, almost memorized in some cases. But back then, it's musicians' first time hearing it. Maybe it doesn't get a great horn solo in the second movement, and that could you know, then the critic, you know, goes off the rails on it. Right. And it's also another one of those symphonies that if an orchestra puts us on the program, he's going to fill seats. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony for me is absolutely one of my favorites, Bill. My recommendation to everyone is listen to a lot of different recordings because for myself even, there's not one perfect recording where every movement is as exactly as I like it. But if you're not liking how a first movement sounds in something, find other recordings. Different parts of the music are brought out completely differently from orchestra to orchestra. It's interesting to hear different interpretations. And one of the reasons why I like the symphony is it sort of gets lost a little bit between the magnificence of the fourth symphony and the sort of 365-degree change in the sixth symphony, which is also two very powerful symphonies, and this one also very powerful. Mm -hmm. But... I think this one is a little more personal. I think that's one of the reasons why I love it the most. Yeah, I agree completely. Well, that's Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. And now, as we're doing something a little bit new here, we are reading your reviews from Apple Podcasts. Yes, uh, this one says, I love the presentation. Excellent way to learn and understand the meaning of the music and biographies. Great job. Thank you so much, Ellie kid 57 for that review and the five stars thank you of course you can also leave a review in apple podcasts and if you want to learn anything else about tchaikovsky's fifth symphony you can visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org and if you have any comments ideas or suggestions you can send us an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org okay bill that's all i have for tchaikovsky's fifth thanks john always a pleasure thank you 